evidence and answers. In Genesis chapter 1, God commanded man to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. However, with the advance in technology, is man now becoming slave to the machines he invented? What is the future of mankind and the advancing technology? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat is interviewing Dr. Craig Gay as they discuss modern technologies and the human future. Now, on to today's broadcast. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. In Genesis 1, God commanded man to have dominion over fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That means man was commanded to subdue and rule over the earth, to use its resources in a responsible way to advance and enhance human life and civilization. However, with the quickly advancing technology, is man now becoming slave to the machines he invented? What is the future of mankind and the advancing technology? Well, to help us discuss this issue today is Dr. Craig Gay. He received his doctorate from Boston University and is a professor of interdisciplinary studies at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on subjects of modernity, secularization, economic ethics, and technology. So, Dr. Gay, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Thank you, Pat. Thank you very much. Yes, this is a very fascinating book here. Modern Technology and the Human Future. Well, as we begin, could you tell us how we define the term technology and machine? Well, I define it pretty broadly in the book. I mean, technology is just any kind of tool or system that we develop to improve the quality of our lives. Machine tools are slightly different in the sense that they're designed to function somewhat independently, sometimes completely independently of us. So there's a kind of automatic quality to uh, machinery. But the technology, I mean, that this can include all kinds of things from cooking to transportation to agriculture to communications, you know, you name it. Yes. And uh, Dr. Gay, you know, what direction is our technology taking us? One of the things you state in, in the book, uh, the questions we're asking, is man becoming slave to the machines that he created. Well, yeah, my principal concern is that automatic machine technology currently is being developed in such a way as to, well, it's, it's sort of, it's diverging away from us, from the uh, requirements of ordinary embodied human life. It's becoming more automatic, more independent. And I mean, there's lots of evidence that this is not actually turning out well for real people. So that's my concern. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, why is this happening? How should we think about it? And why isn't there more resistance to it? And then also what sort of corrective can Christians offer to this development? Yeah. What do you mean when you say it's not turning out well for the average person? There's a lot of evidence that seems to suggest that our interaction with machinery is hard on us. I mean, evidence from the workplace, evidence, psychological evidence. Gosh, it's sort of everywhere you look, people are trying to adjust to machine rhythms and systems, but they're having a hard time. You know, the most serious 
problem with a lot of this is how automation is actually replacing people in the workforce. So the problem of what's been called technological unemployment, which has been a problem for quite a long time. I mean, the, the phrase was coined about 150 years, but this is starting to become a, a fairly serious problem for a, a lot of people, that people are being replaced by robotic technologies. Once you start looking for it, you find it in many places. Yeah, you know, even, you know, not just in the area of fast food like McDonald's, where now you can go up to a computer and order things, but also in the area of academic field, which you and I are in. People can take classes online and watch a professor who may have been deceased, and they can watch and take classes, maybe from a great professor who has passed on. And as the technology increases, you may need less and less teachers. You know, you can have a 3D image pop up of maybe a great teacher of the past, C.S. Lewis or somebody, and be able to take classes from him. So I can see what you're saying, how technology is beginning to replace the human in many areas. Well, I would love to be able to watch a video of C.S. Lewis. I would do that, and I would be grateful for it. I think the problem is, is that C.S. Lewis any professor really, they get good at what they do by doing it with in real situations with real people in real environments over many years, right? And so at the end of a, of a career, then, you know, somebody's course is, is put on up on video. And, you know, that's great. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. But to the extent that then video replaces actual classrooms with actual student-teacher interaction, you are basically making it impossible for new C.S. Lewis's ever to emerge again, because there just won't be an environment in which they can develop. And that does worry me, because more and more schools are, in effect, automating more and more of their uh, educational programs. Yes, and as you know, you state in your book, as technology begins to advance, we're becoming more and more uh, dependent on the machines. Well, we hear a lot, and you've addressed this in your book, about transhumanism. What exactly is this, and why should we be concerned? Well, I don't know that we need to be too concerned, but transhumanism is a movement. It's a kind of suggestion that the next stage in human evolution will be out of our bodies and into machinery. So, I mean, there, there isn't any evidence that this is actually possible, and, and there's uh, there are pretty good arguments that suggest that it's not possible in principle. But there are people that are excited about it, and they're suggesting that, you know, we can somehow uh, migrate human consciousness into uh, machinery that then will, in effect, be immortal. Yeah, I mean, I mention it a few spots in the book, but it used to be the stuff of science fiction only, and now it's become uh, more and more a part of serious conversation in places where high technology is being developed. One of the things you stated in your book, you said disembodied intelligence cannot ever be human. So why is human embodiment, you know, so critical in this argument? Well, I use one quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I mean, he's just one of any number of theologians that have put it well. But he captures this with the simple phrase that a human being, to be a human being, is to be a human body. I mean, there, there isn't any such thing as a disembodied human being. Embodiment is part and parcel of what it means to be human. And, of course, the reason this matters 
so much for Christians is that the, the core of, of the Christian message, the, the gospel we preach, is that God himself has become a human being, one of us in Christ. And that this isn't just temporary, but it's an enduring commitment to embodied human being. I mean, Jesus remains a human being in a human body. And so there's this giant endorsement in Christianity of embodied human being. And, you know, whatever we use our technologies for, it ought to be, or they ought to be used to enhance embodied human being and not to diminish it, not to detract from it. And uh, that's sort of the thesis of the book. I mean, if we see technology trending away from ordinary embodied human being, this, from a Christian point of view, should all the alarms should be going off because our central conviction is that God has absolutely committed himself to embodied human being. Yes. Now, I've been reading more and more articles debating the issue, can disembodied intelligence, you know, like AI, can that be, I think the word they use is conscious. I'm seeing more and more of that. And most of these articles I'm reading are coming from the naturalist worldview that there is really no soul or spirit in a person. We're just chemistry. And so many of them argue in favor that, yeah, disembodied intelligence could be conscious. Are you seeing more and more of that, that debate going on? Well, yeah, but I mean, nobody really knows what consciousness is. It's kind of hard to know. There are people who are working in this area and thinking about it and so forth. And I guess a naturalistic assumption, you could say that, well, whatever consciousness is, it must somehow arise out of you know natural material forces and, and causes and so forth. But I take all of that with a grain of salt, just because I don't, I honestly don't think people have know yet what consciousness is. Yes. You also state in your book, given its evident trajectory, modern automatic machine technology is more likely to detract from our ordinary embodied experience of the world than it is to enhance it. What do you mean by that? Well, quite simply, that automatic machine technology has been designed to function automatically, which is to say it's been designed to function independently as much as possible of human input. And the reason for that is that human beings are not, they're unpredictable. They're often unreliable. They're sometimes irrational. They get tired. Ordinary people are a problem from the machine point of view. And so, you know, the more automated we can make our systems, the more predictable they become, the more reliable they become, and the cheaper they are. I mean, that's the other big problem with actual human beings is they're expensive. So a lot of our, you know, you mentioned McDonald's earlier, and they're, yes, they are going to automate kiosk ordering and so forth. And the fellow who was the CEO at the time, I, I don't think he is anymore, but he was announcing this change. And the reasons he gave were that it was basically, it's cheaper, cheaper and it's more reliable. And that's happening all over the place in the modern economy. The reasons are simply that automatic machine technology is striving toward becoming automatic. So, I mean, it isn't intended to enhance ordinary embodied human existence. In a sense, I guess you could argue that, well, yes, but it's making products and services available to ordinary people at cheaper costs. But beyond that, it really isn't intended to enhance human being. And, you know, technology can do that. I mean, there are lots of examples of technologies that have made human being possible and then rich and full and, and engaged and, and 
you know, all sorts of good things have resulted from our use of technology. But automatic machine technology, that's not what it's designed to do. Yes, and Dr. Gay, what are the moral guidelines for the responsible use and development of technology? I see a lot thinking that says, well, if we can do it, then we should. But really, there needs to be some kind of moral ethical guidelines in how we responsibly use and develop and pursue new technologies. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question, and it's it's a hard question. But I think people, I mean, often ask pretty much day to day, you know, what about this technology or what about that? Should we use this? Should we use that? Is this good or is this bad? And one of the points I make in the book is that these are good questions, but we stand absolutely no chance of answering them unless we know what kinds of people we are trying to become, unless we know kind of where we are and where we're trying to get to. And then we can ask, okay, is this technology helping? Is it helping us to become the kinds of people that we are aspiring to become or not? And if it's helping, great, use it, celebrate it, be thankful for it. But if it's not helping, well, obviously you wouldn't use it. I mean, it's not helping us to get to where we're trying to get to. And again, the the problem today is that these sorts of basic questions about, you know, who, who do we want to become? Like, what does it mean to be a genuinely human person? These kinds of questions aren't being asked, and they're, they're not being asked as, as actively as they ought to be. And that's why I'm trying to reintroduce the, the whole last half of the book is basically trying to sketch out a theology of where in the world we are, what creation is about, what the human vocation within the creation or how that should be understood. And then at the very end of the book, I used all of that theology to help us begin to answer these, you know, more specific questions about should we do this? Should we do that? Should we use this? Should we use that? But without the theology, there's no way you can answer these questions. You're just drifting along with technological development and you're allowing the, the people that market the stuff to tell us who we ought to aspire to be. And that just isn't a very good idea. Yes, you know, that is a great question that we need to ask that I rarely see being asked in, you know, this arena. What kind of people are we trying to become? What's the difference in, you know, as best as you can do it in the short amount of time that we have? I mean, how does the naturalist or the commercial world kind of answer that? Or what do they want us to become compared to the biblical response to this question? What kind of people are we trying to become? That is a great and very important question here. Well, I mean, the marketing people want to sell products, right? So, and I don't blame them. I mean, that's what they do. They want us to imagine what our lives will be like with the addition of whatever it is they're trying to sell us. And beyond that, you know, they don't really say much about, you know, what it means to be human or what what constitutes a good human life or, or whatnot. In a way, I don't know, I'm not in marketing, but I'm guessing that they really kind of want to discourage that kind of reflection because, you know, you don't have to think about it too hard to realize that, hey, I don't really need any of this stuff to be a good human being. And, you know, to think that if I buy this or that, somehow that's going to make me a better person. Well, no, it won't. So there's a sort of active discouragement of that kind of reflection, I think. But from a Christian point of view, I mean, there's a there's a lot we can say about this. I mean, gosh, our place, you started the program with a quote from Genesis about the human vocation as the stewards of creation to rule over the fish of the sea and so forth. 
Well, the consensus today is that the human creatures who are created in the image and likeness of God are placed within the creation in order to mediate God's presence and God's intention within the created order. And I take that to mean that our job within the creation is to enable things, the other creatures, to be themselves to be fruitful, to live, to thrive. I mean, that's our task. It's to take care of the world such that it can become most fully what it desires to become in, in fruitfulness and diversity and, and pluriformity and, and whatnot. I mean, a friend of mine coined the term superabundance to describe uh, God's intention for uh, created order. And our task is to facilitate that as well as to give voice to it. All of a sudden, you know, when you start to think about life that way and you start to think especially about the tools we use and, and the things that we're doing, you know, things start to fall into place. And a lot of what we're currently doing to our world is diminishing it. It's not enabling things to flourish. So the, I mean, that's where I do take that discussion in that uh, later chapter of the book. But it's a big question. Does that begin to help? Yes. Yes, you're listening to our interview with Dr. Craig Gay, and we're talking about his new book here, Modern Technology and the Human Future. Well, Dr. Gay, give us an example of what you mean when you say, you know, a lot of things we create does not allow the creation and mankind to flourish. You, you, you got an example off the top of your head? Well, I mean, the best example that I think I can think of at the moment is, this is my example. I borrow this from Wendell Berry and, and Michael Pollan. It's the example of industrial agriculture and what is called monoculture, that we've taken natural diversity, we've eliminated that in favor of single crops grown over vast areas using chemical fertilizers and industrial technologies and tools. And this is great in a lot of ways. I mean, it, this is what enables us to have fast food, right? Because you've got lots and lots of fast food outlets that are serving up lots and lots of meals to lots and lots of people, you know, every minute of every day. And you have to supply them with, you know, potatoes and beef, you know, the limited range of products that they actually sell. And that requires these things to be grown in vast quantities. But it's all simplified and everything's homogenous and it's standardized. And instead of increasing the range of possibilities, it's decreased it. And instead of broadening the horizon, it's narrowed it. And I mean, it's bad for soil. It's bad for animal worlds in, you know, in terms of environmental impact. It also turns out to be bad for people in terms of diet. But this is the way modern mechanized agriculture works. And why? Well, because it's cost effective and it's efficient and it makes it makes these basically fast food industry possible. That's a good example of it. We're diminishing the creation for the sake of commercial development. Uh, we're narrowing the range of options for the sake of profit. I don't want to come down too hard on fast food, but it's just, this is not stewardship. We're not stewarding the creation. We're using the creation for the sake of purposes that we've imposed upon it, which are narrow and, and short-sighted, you know, ultimately selfish. And this isn't working out well. This is not what stewardship means. So that's probably the best example I can think of off the top of my head. Yes. You know, one of the uh, questions that are being asked now as artificial intelligence develops, as machines are becoming more human-like, and I think we've brought it up a couple times on this show. Now we're seeing the debate on what 
does it mean to be human? You know, why is that a question that's being asked in our time now? It seems like a pretty obvious answer years past, but suddenly now we're asking that question, what does it mean to be human? Well, that's great. I mean, I, this is an age-old question, and it's one that we should ask. And I just hope that people are trying to answer it as well as, you know, ask it, because it begs theological questions. You can't really answer that question of what it means to be human without raising the question of God. And, you know, where, why are we here? How did we get here? And the more people uh, ask those sorts of questions, the happier I am, because that's fruitful, right? You know, when it's asked in certain circles, technological circles, it's more a question of what features of human being are necessary, I don't know, what possibly use to develop artificial intelligence and, and, and so forth. There, I don't know if the, if the question's really being raised in a, in a way that is very fruitful, but it's interesting. I mean, in general, I wouldn't ever want to discourage people from asking that question. It's a crucial question. You state in your book that there seems to be a direction that our machines are getting more intelligent and human-like while we are lapsing into greater ignorance and more machine-like. Explain that to us. I think it's a very significant observation you make there. Well, I mean, the, the observation is, I think I cite Nicholas Carr there, but it's the impact that automated systems have on human skill development. And we know this every time we're forced to do a mathematical calculation and all we have at our disposal is pen and or, you know, maybe a pencil and a piece of paper. And you have to try and remember, how do you do long division, right? Or uh, how do you multiply large numbers? And of course, this used to be rote. I mean, you know, we learned in school how to do these things. It used to be easy. You wouldn't even have had to think about it, right? But we've gotten so used to using our phones and our calculators on the phones to do these calculations that now when we're forced to actually do them by hand, we have to really stop and think, gosh, how, how was it that you did that? Well, that's true of any kind of automated system that, that people use. We lose the skills. This has been in the news recently, the problem of automated systems in commercial aircraft that the pilots are now basically administrators of, automatic, of automated systems in, in aircraft. And when they're forced to actually fly the planes, sometimes they can't remember how. That's been not a good thing. So the other example that Nicholas Carr gives, which is interesting, is the um, Eskimos, the Inuit in the north of Canada, were legendary for being able to find their way in the Arctic. Uh, whether, you know, I mean, there are no landmarks, apparently. I mean, it, it's like everything looks the same. And yet these people could navigate over tremendous distances, very, very accurately. Nobody really knew how they did this. It was a skill that was passed on from generation to generation until they started to use GPS devices, the younger generation. They started to use snowmobiles with GPS systems. And now, all of a sudden, within one generation, it looks like that wayfinding skill that used to be so remarkable has been lost. And nobody knows how it will ever be recovered or if it will be possible to recover it. So again, these automated systems that we use, and, and I, you know, I mean, I, we all use them, but they can result and often do result, maybe even necessarily result in the loss of skills. Yes, you know, I don't know if this is a good example, but, you know, I'm a 
ex-collegiate golfer and things. And, you know, when we played, we didn't have GPS and all these machines that tell us how far Distance, away the yeah. target is and the wind blowing and all these kinds of things and where to hit the ball. And now when I'm playing with my friends, they just look at their phones and the phones tell them how far it is, where the wind is blowing and pretty much what to hit. And so when I, t you know, and I refuse to use those things. So when I force them not to use them, well, I tear them up, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Maybe that's, you know, something that we're, you, you say skills that we're losing here because of technology. But maybe more on a serious note, you know, with this younger generation, they're building their relationships on the internet, texting and iPhone and Facebook and all this. But when it comes to face-to-face -face relationships, there I'm finding, you know, in my students that they're much more weaker interpersonal relationships because they're so used to just typing and texting and you can actually almost be someone else when you're having these kinds of relationships over the internet. run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps at a conference, give him a call. That number locally in Hawaii is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, 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 hey.